This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans, such as myself, will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we know, but most, well, we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So in this limited series... We will explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. Special thanks to some of my patrons, as always. Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my dear two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and my spicy girl, Judy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. The 2015 movie Room starts us off with a quick flash of things like a door, a red bucket, blurry images of things we can't quite make out. And then we see a young woman shushing a young boy lovingly, telling him to go to sleep as she turns out a light. Then we hear the child's voice tell us, quote, Once upon a time, before I came, you cried and cried and watched TV all day until you were a zombie. But then I zoomed down from heaven through skylight into the room and I was kicking you from the inside. And then I shot out onto the rug with my eyes wide open, and you cut the cord and said, Hello, Jack. End quote. We see a young mother and her very young son resting peacefully in a small bed together. The mother looks at her young son lovingly and hugs him tight, telling him he is, quote, such a big boy now. The child gets out of bed and begins telling various items in the darkened room good morning. We learn that it is Jack's fifth birthday on this day as the mother tells her son to take his vitamin, making a vocal note that it is the last one. The mother indicates that she has a bad tooth, but that it doesn't matter if she forces herself to forget it. They clean the very small room together while watching TV. As they are doing the chores and attempting to get exercise, you begin to realize they are not in a good situation. 
The one room they are in has a bed, a tiny locker for a closet, a bathtub and toilet a mere few steps away from the bed, and a small corner that serves as a kitchen. Jack can make it from one side of the room to the other in three running steps. Oh, I meant this well. Did I say this well? I meant this well. But I actually meant, I meant this well. It begins to feel very claustrophobic very quickly. As the young mother puts Jack's birthday cake in front of him, he begins to get upset because there are no birthday candles on it. The mother states that Jack knows she can only get things from him if she asks him and then only if he brings them. She tells young Jack that she will try to make sure there are candles next year when he turns six. She reads him books, does their laundry in the one small sink, and hangs them to dry on a string. An alarm goes off on her watch as she tells Jack it's time for bed. We see that there is a very small notch in the wall where he does have his very own small bed. She sings him the song Big Rock Candy Mountain to lull him to sleep. Once they are both asleep, we hear some beeps and what sounds like a very heavy door opening. A male voice tells the young mother that he has brought a meager amount of food for her and her son. The man, who we learned they call Old Nick, notices the birthday cake, eats some, and says, quote, You should have told me. I would have got a present. So how old is he anyway? Four? End quote. And Jack whispers to himself, Five. Jack then begins counting while we hear what we all know is going on in the bed within a couple of steps from that small boy. At this point, we are uncomfortably aware that the mother and Jack are prisoners in a very small, windowless room, save a very small square skylight. Once the mother finishes enduring and the man leaves, she picks Jack up and takes him into the bed with her, covers them up, turns away from him, and goes to sleep. But because there are no windows and no clocks or anything to indicate the passage of time, we feel as though every moment blends into the rest. Has it been five hours? Five minutes? Five days? We can't be sure, and it fills the viewer with that numb, gray, depressed feeling that only hints at what the occupants of this room must be feeling. Day after day, the two exist in what they call room. The man comes again after an indeterminate amount of time or days and asks if Jack liked the truck that he brought down for him. The mother instantly notices that the man didn't bring any more vitamins, to which the man states that there's no need for vitamins and that they are a waste of money. He starts arguing with the mother and she immediately backs down as he gaslights her into submission about how he pays for the electricity, the food, and how much the world has changed since she has been down there. The man begins trying to interact with Jack and the mother all but begs him to, quote, come to bed, to which the man responds with, didn't your mother teach you any manners? Once the pair are asleep. Jack sneaks out of his bed and 
tiptoes over to them, looking down at the man. The man wakes up, reaches out to touch the boy, and the young mother wakes up and screams, Don't touch him! The man begins to choke the mother, asking her, Do you want to breathe? She calms down as the man says, If you ever grab at me like that again, and he leaves. When the mother and Jack wake up, it becomes obvious that the man has turned the electricity off to the room and we realize that it is winter and quite cold inside. As the mother is clearly dissociating and staring off into space, she wakes up a bit and begins telling Jack her story. She tells him about a world on the other side of room that she once had been a little girl named Joy and she lived in a normal house. She compares things to what he has seen on the modest television they've been allowed to have. We now know that Jack was born in the room and has never experienced anything outside of it. The mother says that she had a mom and a dad and that Jack would call them grandma and grandpa with a backyard and a swing. She says when she was 17 years old, old Nick saw her walking home from school and approached her, telling her that his dog was very sick and he needed her help. Only there was no dog. She tells her son that, quote, old Nick stole me, end quote. She explains that old Nick put her in the room and she has been there for seven years now, making her now 24 years old. She is trying to explain to Jack about the whole world, and Jack becomes very upset, shouting that he does not want to hear her story. And then again, after some unknown amount of time, the lights suddenly come back on, and they are again warm. But the mother is overcome with her grief and hasn't the mental strength to even get out of bed, and Jack gets up to make his own breakfast. Finally, the next day, or as much as we can guess, the mother and Jack start discussing trying to escape room. The mother tells Jack that she is going to make Jack's face hot, so that old Nick will have to take him to the emergency room, and once he's there, she wants him to tell the staff that he needs help and to call the police. Jack becomes frightened and says that, you know, perhaps they should wait until he's six years old, but his mother tells him that it has to be that very night. She puts a hot wash rag on his face, vomits, and wipes it on her son so that he smells sick. As old Nick comes in, he feels young Jack's face to see if he's feverish. The mother pleads with the man to take Jack to the emergency room, but Old Nick leaves, stating he will bring medicine. So now, she tells Jack the next time Old Nick comes in, he is to play dead and stay stiff as she rolls him up in a rug. She says Old Nick will pick him up in the rolled up rug and put him in the back of his truck and that way Jack can escape. They practice and practice and she repeatedly tells Jack what he is to do. We realize that the young mother is skeptical that she will make it out alive, though she doesn't convey this to her son, but tells Jack to tell the first person he sees that his mother is Joy and that he will be able to be with his grandparents, her parents. 
Later, Old Nick comes in as the mother sobs over the rolled-up rug, Jack playing dead inside, and explains that Jack got really sick and died. Old Nick shows uh, a bit of sympathy as they discuss where to take Jack's body. She asks him to take their son somewhere where there are trees. He swears that he will. So Old Nick picks up the rug and takes it out with Jack still wrapped inside. What happens next? For those of us that have seen the movie know, and the rest, well, it's a powerfully emotional movie, and I recommend you see it. This movie is based on the even more unbelievably horrific true story of Elizabeth Fritzel. But to know her story, we have to start with her father, Yosef. So Yosef Fritzel was born on April 9th, 1935 in Amstetten, Austria. We've covered a lot of history in the 30s and 40s lately, so we'll skip it for this podcast. His father, Yosef Sr., abandoned him when Yosef was four years old, never to return or have anything to do with his son ever again, though some sources said his mother kicked his father out for infidelity, but the sentiment is the same. His father was gone. It was said that they never married and that Fritzel had been his mother's maiden name that she gave to her son. Now, according to the site crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, supposedly Yosef's maternal grandmother's name was Anna and she married a mill owner. The marriage was one of convenience. They did not love each other. Also, Anna was unable to conceive a child, so her husband conceived children with an employee of theirs, and word was that he had done this with a few of them, and one of those children was named Maria. This would be Yosef's mother. So he described Maria as being very strict, being both mentally and physically abusive toward him. Neighbors who knew Yosef and his mother later testified to the fact that they knew she beat him. Maria occasionally bragged that the only reason she had Yosef was to prove that she was not sterile like her father's wife had been. She treated her son as a burden and made sure he knew it, and there was no hope for a loving relationship, no matter how much Yosef tried. He had always known his mother did not love him. Maria left him home alone very frequently and sometimes for a period of time, and that fear he felt of being abandoned was even more intense during World War II. There were bombing raids in their town. Maria absolutely refused to go to the air raid shelter near their home, insisting on staying in the house. She sent Yosef into the shelter under the house instead, but basically never knowing where he stood with his mother caused him to suffer from intense anxiety. Psychiatrist Adelaide Kastner, who carried out interviews with Yosef, stated, quote, Herr Fritzl spent most of his childhood in a severe state of anxiety. His mother had him solely in order to prove to the world that she was not infertile, end quote, because as we know, she had had no children with her first husband. Yosef Sr. had been her second. 
Yosef told Dr. Kastner that he struggled throughout his entire childhood to form a relationship with his mother, but he said that it was impossible to build any sort of bond or trust with her. And if you've been with me for a bit, we've recently actually been talking quite a bit about attachment disorders, so this should sound familiar. Dr. Kastner stated that he developed an ambivalent attachment style toward his mother, which further molded and twisted his later adult relationships. So, he coped by internalizing all of these feelings and began experiencing an overwhelming need to exert power and control, to dominate and possess another person. He was starting to live out a fantasy life in his head where he was in complete control. And while he got older and matured, the main influence around him at the time were the Nazis. And in fact, his father had been a big supporter of the cause before he abandoned his young son. In fact, in March 1938, when Yosef was really only three years old, Hitler's troops marched across the border into Amstetten. Hitler himself followed a few days later to be greeted by a large crowd. Young Josef was in that crowd, perched on the shoulders of his father to meet the Fuhrer. During the Second World War, Maria was supposedly arrested and interned at a concentration camp where she spent a few months. Nine-year-old Yosef was left on his own. He did spend a brief period in an orphanage where they told him his mother was dead. Of course, eventually, she was returned, but she came back even more aggressive and violent. He grew into a quite serious-minded teenager who other students described as, quote, slightly different. It was said that he showed a bit of an ignorance for the emotions and attitudes of others. His peers later stated that he acted slightly superior to the other kids, that he was intelligent, but aloof. It was also said that when he was a teenager, he developed a pretty standard urinary tract infection, only his mother wouldn't take him to the doctor and there wasn't the money to go anyway and it remained untreated for quite some time. He would be in horrible pain from it, and she did nothing to try to help or comfort him. So, Yosef left school at just 16 years old and entered a vocational school and graduated with a degree in electrical engineering. In 1956, he met and married Rosemarie. He was 21, She, just 17. And that was his childhood. Experts state that he suffered from Freud's theory of psychosexual stages of development, one called Oedipus Complex. The Oxford Dictionary defines this as, quote, the complex of emotions aroused in a young child, typically around the age of four, by an unconscious sexual desire for the parent of the opposite sex and wish to exclude the parent of the same sex, end quote. Typically, this becomes resolved when the boy begins to identify with his father as an indirect way to have the mother. Failure to resolve the Oedipus complex may turn into an unhealthy fixation, which can remain, 
causing them to choose romantic partners that resemble physically or personality their opposite sex parent as an adult. Yosef and Rosemary went on to have seven children together, two sons, five daughters, throughout the 1960s. It was said that he treated his children just as harshly as his mother had treated him. He demanded his children call him sir, and he was quite militant toward them. He, too, physically abused his children as his choice of discipline. He had a need to compensate for his childhood of maternal dominance and control by doing the same to his children, and Rosemarie was not immune either. In 1967, when Yosef was 32, he broke into a young woman's house and violently raped her while holding her at knife point. He was also suspected of two more assaults, but Yosef was eventually arrested for the assault and indecent exposure and was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He only served 12, and after his release... Well, he could no longer control his urges for control and domination. So out of all of his children, his daughter, Elizabeth, was his more strong-willed child because she was more fiercely independent and resistant to his domineering ways. He began to single her out as her personality reminded him of his mother. He began making inappropriate advances on all of his daughters, but Elizabeth fought off his advances the most, which excited him. He began sexually molesting her when she was only 11 years old. At just 15 years old, she completed her public school education and started some sort of course to be a waitress and As always, Yosef was watching her grow up and dreaming about her life as a free adult, and he was none too pleased. In 1983, she had finally had enough and ran away from home. She hid in Vienna with a friend from her work, but she was found and returned to her parents in just three weeks. She did finish her waitress course the next year and was offered a job in a nearby town, During this same time, however, Yosef was working in the basement. He didn't allow anyone to come down there, but he did tell his wife that he was working on things for his job. No one suspected what he was really building. In the meantime, when his mother became elderly and frail, he locked her in a room he built in his attic with bricked-over windows. He kept her there until she died. He said it was revenge for the way she treated him growing up. Once she was gone, he finished his project in the basement. Yosef then plotted the perfect time. He then called for his daughter Elizabeth, who was now 18, to come downstairs to the basement to help him hang a door on the hinges. She, of course, obeyed and followed her father down into the basement. He then grabbed her put a cloth soaked in ether over her face until she lost consciousness, then dragged her through a very small opening in a wall behind some piece of furniture and into the room he had completed. Yosef then shut and locked the new door, thus sealing her in the living quarters he had built. There was no escape and no witnesses as to what had happened to her. 
Rosemary, of course, became frantic when Elizabeth went missing and called the police to report her as a missing person. While the community immediately began trying to find Elizabeth above, she awakened to find herself sealed in the chamber below. The underground bunker had no windows or natural light whatsoever, but did have electrical lighting, electronic code locks on each door, including the main door that was the entrance, which Fritzel installed himself. For the first year of her imprisonment, he kept her restrained and visited her nearly every single day to sexually assault and torture her. He also forced her to watch pornography, and then he would reenact the scenes with her. He forced Elizabeth to write a letter stating she had moved in with a friend and that she would flee Austria if her parents tried to find her. Josef then went to Brunau and mailed it so that the postmark wouldn't be local. Sometimes he brought his daughter food and supplies. Other times she was brought to the point of near starvation. He beat her, tortured, and sexually assaulted her day after day. According to the family, they observed him going down to the basement every morning at 9 a.m., supposedly to draw plans for and build machines that he sold to businesses, and they had no reason to question that. In fact, a lot of men enjoy their solitude and work in their man cave, so to speak, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, more often than not, Yosef stayed down there overnight. He demanded that no one go down there for any reason. He ruled his home with an iron fist, as we know, and no one disobeyed him. Yosef actually rented a ground floor room to a tenant who, for 12 years, later stated that they could hear noises from the basement. Fritzl just explained that they were from the gas heating system. And this was her existence, day in and day out. And after being held captive for a few years, Elizabeth became pregnant. She gave birth to their daughter, Kirsten, in 1989, alone in her dungeon that was infested with rats. Let that marinate for a moment. Their second child was born, Stefan, in 1990. In 92, baby Lisa was born, and in 94, Monica was born. After Monica, Yosef agreed to enlarge the living areas of the basement so that his daughter and their children could have more space. This was accomplished by Elizabeth and the older children having to dig through the dirt with their bare hands, of course. She could not be offered tools to assist her because he knew she might try to use them in other ways. Elizabeth and the children were allowed to have a TV, a hot plate, a small refrigerator, and a VCR with tapes to occupy their time. Elizabeth did her best to teach her children how to read and write. If she didn't obey her father completely, he would shut the electricity off, making the whole bunker pitch black as punishment or simply not bring them food for days at a time. In 1996, Elizabeth gave birth to twins, Alexander and Michael. However, Michael died when he was three days old and Yosef cremated him. 
The last child, Felix, was born in 2002. For 24 years, he did this to his own daughter. And during all of the assaults, her children were either in the room or within earshot. And he was aware of this. This was to humiliate her in front of her own children. Now, three of the children, when they were infants, are very, very small. Yosef took them from Elizabeth and secretly brought them upstairs, leaving them on the literal doorstep to be discovered. He and his wife were then approved to be the foster parents of their grandchildren as the infants came with a note from Elizabeth stating she was unable to care for them wherever she supposedly was. And so, Yosef helped raise three of his children slash grandchildren with his wife. So he kept his daughter and the other three children compliant and obedient by telling them that if they disobeyed him in any way, he would gas them through the ventilation system. Of course, there was no gas connected to the basement. He also told them the door to the actual basement was set up to electrocute them if they attempted to mess with it. So then on April 19th, 2008, Kirsten, who was now 19 years old, collapsed in the room. Elizabeth begged her father for help, and he took the girl upstairs and to the hospital. This was the first time Kirsten had ever seen true light from the sun. At the hospital, Kirsten was treated for severe kidney failure, among other serious issues due to lack of oxygen and the loss of many of her teeth. And Yosef explained that her mother was off living with some cult. However, Elizabeth again begged her father to be able to see their eldest child in the hospital, and Yosef finally and surprisingly relented. After 24 years, Elizabeth was also out of the basement. While she visited her daughter in the hospital, a doctor thankfully recognized her and called the police. The police came to the hospital where Yosef and Elizabeth were visiting their daughter who had been placed in a chemically induced coma. They were pulled into separate rooms and questioned. At first, Elizabeth wouldn't speak. The authorities had to promise her that she would never have to see her father again. She then told them everything. Her captivity in the windowless basement, the nearly daily sickening assaults from her own father, giving birth to seven children completely alone and with no reasonable supplies, one of her babies dying the last 24 years of her life. She was now 42 years old. Yosef was quickly arrested and charged with incest, coercion, rape, false imprisonment, enslavement, and negligent homicide for Michael, the twin who died shortly after birth. He pleaded guilty to all the charges and was sentenced to life in prison. The psychiatrist, again, Dr. Kastner, diagnosed him with severe combined personality disorders, namely borderline, schizotypal, 
and schizoid personality disorders, as well as serious sexual disorders, and recommended he be under psychiatric care for the rest of his life. He is serving his life sentence in a special prison unit for the criminally insane. But what of life after the dungeon? Obviously, experts agreed that she should never have to see her father again. She and her children were given new identities and moved to an undisclosed location so that they could try to live the most normal life that they could from then on. They were receiving ongoing therapy sessions to try to heal the traumas that they endured. It is said that they are living in a two-story home that is monitored at all times by CCTV surveillance and the grounds are patrolled by security guards. Anyone trying to sneak around will be arrested. So tell me guys, what do you think? What do you think about this crazy story? Leave me a message below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. I'm pretty active over there if that's where you want to interact with me. All of my contact information is below and most importantly, thank you guys so, so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.